This show was played live on Friday night. Now we are going to play the repeat of Friday Night Live. Please do not call or text to participate in the show. Any announcement made in the show may now not be applicable. Assalamu alaikum, you're listening to Inspire FM, uh, 105.1 FM. This is actually live, Friday Night Live. Um, and it's me, it's with me, Zafar Iqbal, uh, replacing your usual hosts uh, for the program, inshallah. Hopefully I can uh, fulfill the the actual high standards that, that uh, my predecessors have set me. Um, having said that, there is, there's lots of things to talk about today, lots of exciting stuff, lots of uh, powerful stuff uh, that's happening around the world, and we've got people who can talk about uh, various issues um, that are happening, various things that are happening around the world, uh, which have hit the headlines uh, in other forms of media uh, within the UK and the world. So what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about the uh, quote-unquote turmoil within the Labour Party. We're going to talk about the accusations of anti-Semitism being levelled at Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party uh, in general. Uh, and uh, we have Professor Normal Finkelstein, who who is a, an American political scientist and activist, uh, who is going to give his opinion uh, on why the Labour Party is um, is being labelled as such. And in particular, what caught my uh, attention was headlines in some newspapers and, and websites uh, indicating that the Palestinian ambassador uh, was urging Jeremy Corbyn not to give in, quote-unquote, uh, over the anti-Semitism code. Now, what does that mean? What is the connection between um, what's happening within the Labour Party and why would the Palestinian ambassador be worried about um, uh, the anti-Semitism code. We'll explore what that means. What, what is the anti-Semitism code? What that relates to? Uh, what that means, and and what the implications are uh, for Palestine. Um, so um, that's the first item on the agenda. We're going to move on uh, in the second half of the program to look at Article Thirty Five A of the Indian Constitution which gives protection to the people of Jammu and Kashmir, which is being abrogated, which is being being phased out, and what the implications of that are for the people of Kashmir. We'll have Professor Zafar Khan, uh, who is going to be with us, and we're hoping, I know it's very late in Kashmir uh, this time of the year, uh, we're hoping to get somebody uh, from Kashmir itself. Uh, we're trying to get Rawa Furman Ali, who's a journalist in, in Jammu and Kashmir, uh, to be on the line for that. Um, and after that, 7 o'clock, uh, we'll have uh, the Chief Constable, John Boucher, in the studio. He's going to talk about the local crime scene, uh, drugs, knife crime on the increase. Uh, generally, um, lack of respect for the police. Uh, if you saw the headlines um, in the Metro the other day, so, some policeman uh, was be, was set upon uh, by bystander uh, in the process of arresting somebody. Is there a general lack of respect for the police, uh, or is that is that, or was that just a one-off incident? Uh, we're going to have a conversation with John Boucher when he's in the studio at seven, uh, and uh, we're going to continue the theme uh, in the fourth half 
uh, where we'll have again the theme will be about policing and and uh, community policing etc with John Boucher into into the fourth half so we have John for the whole hour uh, I'm sure there'll be lots to talk about and I'm sure if you've got any questions if you want to ring in uh, and uh, talk to to John he'll be more than happy to respond and answer your questions so stand by seven o'clock when John will be uh, in the studio inshallah so uh, we'll get off straight away onto on our first topic um, we're going to talk about the uh, anti anti-Semitism claims uh, against the Labour Party. And uh, I'm going to have a conversation with uh, Professor Normal Finkelstein. Hi, hi uh, Professor Norman, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Right, thank you very much for taking the time out from all the way from America to talk to us about British politics. Uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, you are well clued up in politics around the world, not just uh, just to the UK. Uh, I wanted to start off uh, by asking, first of all, um, the allegations uh, against the Labour Party. Um, now, I know the uh, there are high profile sort of Jewish members of the community uh, who have actually labelled or levelled these allegations at the Labour Party. I just wanted to understand what the the substance and what the reason for those are. What, why is the Labour Party being being targeted or is being accused of anti anti-Semitism at this time? Uh, well, first of all, we have to clear away all the misinformation, the disinformation, yeah. the prevarication, the lies, and then we can proceed to try to analyze what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no evidence whatsoever, none, zero, nil, that the Labour Party has an anti-Semitism problem. Mm-hmm. When uh, Corbyn represents the militant left of British public life, and he's also among his other among his commitments in life has been a strong commitment to Palestinian rights. That's consistent with his many other commitments to workers' rights, to the rights of minorities, and so forth. Now, uh, on the so to speak, I don't like the expression, but I'll use it right now. Mm-hmm. On the pro-Palestinian uh, in a pro-Palestinian community. There's always been on the fringes a handful of kooks, nuts, fruitcakes, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes with the turf. Mm-hmm. Maybe one would prefer that it didn't come with the turf, but it did, does. And, you know, we're talking about a handful of people, mm-hmm. uh, basically a variety of crackpots. Mm-hmm. And so when uh, the Corbin wing became ascendant in the... Labour Party, you did find a handful of these uh, crackpots. That's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a major problem? No. Is it a minor problem? Not really. It's an assortment of fruitcakes, period, full stop. But they happen. So, but the, the, the argument would be they happen to be with, associated with the Labour Party, and there have been cases reported. No, that's in his not correct at all. All the mm-hmm. surveys show. Uh, first of all, the question of anti-Semitism has been polled and surveyed to death in the UK, mm-hmm. as it has been, incidentally, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole lot of raw material, mm-hmm. uh, data that one can refer to. The, uh, there is a, 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 a larger density 
of anti-Semitism in the far right Mm -hmm. of British life than there is in the far left of British life. That's just a matter of fact, Mm -hmm. as all surveys have shown. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing peculiar, particular, specific to the Labour Party when it comes to this issue. Mm -hmm. The, 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 The bottom line is, this is not, has not, and will not be about Mm anti-Semitism. What it has to do with is very simple, and people are too afraid in the UK, Mm -hmm. they're too politically correct in the UK to come out and say it. Mm -hmm. The question is very simple. Who is going to control the foreign policy of the Labour Party should it come into power vis-a-vis Israel? Who is going to control it? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be Israel that will control Labour Party foreign policy when it comes to the Middle East? Or is it going to be the rank and file and the elected leadership of the uh, Labour Party? Mm-hmm. That's the fundamental question. People don't like it to be posed that way mm-hmm. because it makes it sound as if some people are acting as dual a double agent or uh, agents of a foreign power or have dual loyalties well sorry those are the facts the facts are the leadership of the uh, British Jewish community the leadership the self mostly mostly self-appointed leadership of the British Jewish community and also the organs of that official Jewish community, uh, the three major Jewish newspapers in the UK, mm-hmm. they're basically agents of the Israeli government. But I mean, I mean, you, you, you say you, you say that, but but wouldn't it be argued yes, that they, they just say support- it, and you know why I say it? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not afraid of the truth. Now, but you, it's, yes, you, it's your, you would you would argue it's your truth by the government, and they're right now trying to bully, browbeat, intimidate. They're trying to use extortion and blackmail tactics to either break the will of Jeremy Corbyn or eject him from. Uh, public life because he refuses to do the bidding of the Israeli government. So what, what, evidence, is, what evidence is is there that, that the other politicians within the other parties uh, are actually doing the bidding of the Israeli uh, state? No, the, the, well, you have to bear in mind that there is right now a convergence mm. of interests between the pro-Israel lobby in British life and all the beneficiaries of the status quo in British life. Mm -hmm. The Tories don't give a darn about Israel, Mm -hmm. and neither for that matter do the Blairites give much, (coughs) have much interest in Israel. Mm -hmm. Their concern is that Corbyn is a militant, principled a representative mm-hmm. of the overwhelming sentiment of the British people mm-hmm. who are hurting under the current status quo, who have been hurting under the current status quo for the past 
two decades or even more, and they're terrified, they're terrified that a person might be elected who actually represents the will, the aspirations, the ambitions of the overwhelming majority of the British people who are hurting under the present system. So all the beneficiaries of the current, of the status quo, all the beneficiaries, and that includes, you know, the folks in BBC, Mm -hmm. the folks in Sky News, Mm -hmm. the folks at The Guardian, all of them. Right. No, uh, Professor Norma, if, if I can bring, bring in Yasmin Qureshi, who's, who's also on the line as well, I, I want to sort of uh, dig a little bit deeper into, in terms of the detail, some of the details of what the accusations are. Uh, just bear with me a sec, please. I just want to uh, uh, bring uh, Yasmin on, on the line. Yeah. Uh, hi, Yasmin. Uh, Yasmin is hi. actually uh, a British Labour Party MP for South um, Bolton South and a barrister as well. So, uh, Yasmin, I wanted to put you... Uh, um, in terms of the, uh, the, there's been some discussions around uh, what the Labour Party has actually approved in terms of what anti-Semitism stands for, uh, and also this new definition uh, that um, that that the I think Jewish community want actually to be sort of adopted by the the Labour Party. If you can sort of dissect the difference between. Uh, what has been accepted by the Labour Party and what, what the, the proposal is? Okay, so the Labour Party said that the international definition of Holocaust, yeah. as set out by the International Holocaust, uh, uh, we are accepting that definition. Yeah. However, they also gave, uh, I believe, nine or ten examples of what could constitute uh, Holocaust um, you know, it could cause anti-Semitism. Yep. Now, off them, right, there's the main one, the one the Labour Party has not encapsulated mm-hmm. into the years, and that is essentially the one about criticism of the state of Israel. Right, okay. And it seems that the ISA wants that particular clue to be part of the Labour Party. And the Labour Party has said, no, I mean, in fact, the Homosexual Black Committee, who looked into the issue of the Homosexual and they so, so Yasmin, if I can ask you to uh, be a little bit closer to your phone, I think we're losing a reception. I am as close. Okay. I'm as close to my phone as possible. All right, that's a lot better. Uh, that's a lot better. I think we, you drifted away a little bit, yeah. So we we kind of lost you a little bit. So 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 essentially, what essentially what you said really was that there's there's a there's a, a suggestion in there that um, uh, anything that one of the examples one of the examples given. Yeah. So, so the International Holocaust Commission they they defined what anti-Semitism is. Yeah. Then they gave some examples about what kind of behavior, actions, acts could constitute anti-Semitism. One of them is criticism of the state of Israel. Now, the Labour Party did not take that example in when they were defining it. And essentially, what number of Labour MPs, Uh, Some of them uh, took issue with that, Mm -hmm. and there have been, as you you know, the Jewish newspapers and the members of the Jewish community, some of them have been saying that that example should also be part of the definition of anti-Semitism. And the Labour Party has resisted that, and it therefore gets accused of anti-Semitism. 
mm-hmm. which is wrong and unfair accusation. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn is among the most decent human beings around who's fought and campaigned against the all forms of discrimination in his entire life. And it's quite ironic watching the Sun newspaper and Sky and uh, Daily Mail and the Express, etc., expressing sympathy and having a set of accusing Jeremy of anti-Semitism when these people are the right-wing fascist supporting newspapers, especially like Daily Mail, who's always supported, sure, you sure. know, okay, so, so fascism and... Yeah, so, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to see how, uh, uh, you know, from our listeners' perspective, how criticism of Israel could be interpreted as anti-Semitism. I, I assume, I assume uh, that could mean things like, for example, if you call somebody uh, a Zionist, um, or refer to somebody as a Zionist in a context uh, which could be seen as, as uh, deemed as uh, discriminatory, would that be one of the th- the things, or is there explicitly references in there well, about Israel? One thing they want is, I think one of the things they suggest is somebody's called Zionist, that's somehow anti-Semitic, right? But actually, uh, you know, as somebody has said, and many senior, some Jewish people, uh, experts, academics, and others said, so there is a big difference between the faith of Judaism and the political uh, thing about Zionists. Mm-hmm. There are two separate... And, 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 is, and is that is that what this particular code is trying to bring in, the fact that anti-Semitism, in the eyes, I guess, of, of, of the Jewish people, could be anti-Semitism could be expressed, uh, you know, uh, in in a form. I of think the idea that yes, they, they think that uh, because uh, Israel is the only Jewish state in the world, yeah. therefore criticizing Israel is same as being anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. But then, right, there are many countries in this world, right, mm-hmm. who hold a particular religion yeah. and known as one particular faith, but we criticize those countries all the time. Mm-hmm. And nobody says that you are then being anti a particular religion. Mm-hmm. And right. therefore, you know, this is not uh, very, this is not fair. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, it is what, uh, to an extent, what Professor Professor Norman Finkelstein, yeah. Professor Norman Finkelstein uh, was saying that this is about people wanting to dictate. Mm -hmm. Well, there's two camps here. There's the right-wing press who just doesn't want Jeremy Corbyn because they know that he will bring in proper policies which will deal with the issue of redistribution of wealth, which will deal with the issues of, you know, unemployment and things that will make life the ordinary working person or the poor person better. So they don't want somebody of that political persuasion getting in. Mm-hmm. And then there are people, uh, in the, some MPs in the Labour Party and some people in the country who are very, uh, uh, who have no compassion for the Palestinians mm-hmm. and who feel very strongly about state of Israel. And they think that if he's a prime minister, he's going to be, you know, much more even-handed mm. in his approach to the whole of the Israel-Palestine situation and is going to be fair about it, and they don't like that. Mm. So it's like two different uh, groups interest lacking one person. Okay, so in, in terms of the, the headlines I quoted at the beginning of the program, uh, the Palestinian ambassador has been quoted as saying that, that uh, 
Corbyn shouldn't give in uh, to the, this this code because it would mean that uh, the legitimate sort of expression uh, of Palestinian history would be uh, would be sort of uh, curtailed. Uh, yeah. I mean, how, how how would that be? How how would that case come about? How would that be? Well, I would uh, I would uh, I would say that David and in fact uh, the Parliamentary Labour Party MP are going to be having the vote on it. Yeah. Uh, to say, you know, we're going to be asked to vote on whether the definition should be accepted. Right. The IAH definition should be accepted in whole or not. And uh, so we shall see. What, what, um, what's the feeling? Know. What's the feeling in general uh, in the Labour Party? Then is is that something that they are prepared to adopt? Is what and what impact is I that going to have? Because I think these are going to be a secret ballot, so it will be interesting to see what happens. Right. Okay. And what would be the effect of that on? On a guess, any, well, it's, any, it's only advisory. It's advisory, to be honest. I mean, you know, the Labour Party National Executive Committee does not have to take it on board, right? And uh, you know, so that might be it. But otherwise, um, it's the MEC. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess uh, j- just to sort of balance the argument a little bit, right? So you see, uh, the, the Jewish community has a as a as a history, um, you know, of, of being persecuted, especially in, in Germany, etc., in the Second World War or before leading up to the Second World War as well, and, and they are very sort of cautious about any forms of expression of of, uh, uh, of discrimination against them, which may lead to you know other forms of persecution, as we are seeing within within Islamophobia and, and people's attitude toward Muslims. Uh, so they are taking precautions uh, uh, to try and make sure that, that they don't get to that situation. They're being proactive. And would, would that not be a fair assessment? Well, I, I think it's only right that uh, the Jewish community, of course. Uh, but you have to understand the Jewish community is not one and the same because there have been quite a few Jewish people who have said that the Labour position on anti-Semitism is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. And uh, although there's been some difference of opinion, but there's people who say it's okay. So I think uh, obviously anti-Semitism, we should deal with it, fight it wherever we find it, and it's unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. Sure. But I don't think the criticism of state of Israel mm-hmm. is, you know, in anti-Semitism. I mean, gosh, people criticize Saudi Arabia all the time. Mm which is marked itself as a Muslim nation, but I don't think anybody's ever said mm-hmm. in relation to Saudi Arabia that if you criticize Saudi Arabia, nobody's ever said that being Islamophobic. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that. So, so, and, so you know, and people do criticize it. So, so, so let, 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 me, let me put the, this question to which I put to Professor Norman. Um, so, they, I mean, you kind of explain the reasons and what's happening within the Labour Party. Um, and I think you, you kind of intimated that, that uh, you know, uh, the character of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, but what, why is the tempo increasing? Why are there more and more cases, uh, I guess, every day have been um, cases of anti-Semitism being highlighted in the newspapers, etc., uh, about the Labour Party, if there's not articles? Why now? What's, what's the... What's the driver? Well, exactly, because this issue has arisen. Because we, because the Labour Party won't accept that definition, the one that uh, essentially will allow... Because the, the, if we accept the IHS, you can really criticise the state of Israel. And that's what we really have now uh, 
you know. Uh, but what, why? Their, but why? Why is that come? Why is that come about now? Why, why are they pushing for that now rather than why didn't that not come about six years ago, or two years ago, or five years ago? What's well, this is on Sunday because mm-hmm. the Labour Party has just uh, defined anti-Semitism, and right, it's okay. not according to the will of some of the people. Right. So now is the time to pressurise for the change. Mm-hmm. And the main uh, thing that the Labour Party has not accepted is the bit about criticism about the state of Israel. Right. So now is their chance to, you know, not have any dis- criticism of okay. the actions. And the thing is, Israelis doing a lot of wrong things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think... Uh, so what, what's what's the, I mean, I mean there, there, there's there's a view looking from outside in of the Labour Party. Uh, what's what's the view of, of the I guess the rank and file members of the Labour Labour Party and the movement? Uh, well, I think you know. there's over half a million people who are members of the Labour Party, mm-hmm. so it's kind of hard to right. gauge the result of everybody. Right. But I, I you know, but I, I, I think that uh, clearly there's many people in the Labour Party who all wish this was not the gender item all the time, because there are actual, you know, there are other issues as well. But uh, I think uh, it's uh, the. <laughs> The media, certain media's narrative. Okay, so I think we've only got sort of a couple of minutes, right? I just want to explore. Um, so there is, there is, I guess, a legitimate concern from from, from the the Jewish community about protection of, of their people and and from discrimination, etc. But Absolutely. there's, there, but there's nothing to do. With- yeah, but there, there's also an impact on uh, on this being adopted by Labour Party, and as Professor Norman said. Uh, the policy, the foreign policy uh, that may be adopted by a Labour government, uh, government, if this particular um, this particular sort of clause is accepted, how would that come about? How how would how would that limit the Labour Party from actually sort of conducting a more fair and by a fair uh, foreign policy? Well, if you think that tax criticism the state of Israel is anti-Semitic, mm-hmm. then as a politician you can't say anything. And therefore, you can't really then make any decisions, right. which could benefit any, which could only benefit that Right. Well, if you do anything contrary to that, mm-hmm. then you're anti-Semitic. Right. Okay. So it 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 is it is a, a form of a gag, I guess. Really. So if that particular court clause. Uh, prevents you from talking about the, but surely you can talk about the actions taken by particular members, right, of the Israeli society, I guess, rather than could you not under this clause? Well, one of the definition, one of the examples given is something about if um, your predominant criticism is of the state of Israel. Right, but okay. then the question is, how do you compare to predominant criticism? Do I say Mr. A wanted to or Miss A wanted to criticize state of Israel? Do they have to then show that? Right. Okay. I criticize Israel on ten occasions, and yeah, I I'm, I'm have to, I'm have to stop. on ten occasions. Right. I'm going to have to take a short break. Welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM 105.1 FM. This is Friday Night Live uh, with me, Safari Kabal. Uh, just before the break, we were talking uh, about uh, the row within the uh, within the Labour Party, I guess, or accusations levelled at the Labour Party of uh, the party being anti-Semitic uh, and its leader as well being anti-Semitic. So we had Professor Norman Finkelstein, uh, um, who is an American political scientist and an activist, giving his views uh, about the motivations uh, of those accusations. 
and also clarified before the break uh, what the details of uh, some of these accusations are in terms of uh, the definitions of uh, anti-Semitism um, by the uh, Labour Party, Labour Party MP Yasmin Qureshi. So we're going to move on to our next topic of discussion. Um, this is uh, 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 basically regarding uh, Article 35 of the Indian Constitution um, and what that is and what its impacts are uh, on the people of the Jammu and Kashmir state. And I have uh, Professor Zafar Khan uh, on the line. Uh, he is also... Uh, an activist and, and a, f- a former senior lecturer at, at the university and uh, very happy to have him on again after many years. Asalaamu Alaikum, Professor Saab. Wa Alaikum Asalaam and thank you very much. Well, welcome to uh, Friday Night Live and to Inspire FM. Thank you, thank you very much. Right, uh, um, so there was, there's been a, a few sort of articles being circulated uh, on WhatsApp and, and, and some comments on newspapers regarding mm. Article 35 of the Indian Constitution without, I guess, yeah. much details of uh, what that is and what the implications are, of that are on the, uh, um, I guess, the people of Jammu and Kashmir. So I wonder if you can start off by explaining what Article 35 is. Well, uh, Article 35A, uh, as it is <clears throat> known, is is not exactly something that uh, is... Um, uh, you know, given, if you like, to the people of Jammu and Kashmir or Indian people of Jammu and Kashmir, it is something that uh, reinforces or maybe recognizes the status quo as it existed before 1947. Mm-hmm. And when the temporary accession took place um, uh, and India temporarily mm-hmm. uh, took over Jammu and Kashmir under, under uh, a temporary uh, accession. And, and so Article 35A guarantees what uh, uh, was um, uh, a part of uh, the rights of the people of Jammu Kashmir. Um, and it, it goes back to 1927. The mm-hmm. ruler then uh, uh, promulgated an order that um, uh, people of uh, non-state residents or citizens, uh, who, people who were not citizens of, uh, of Jammu Kashmir, uh, did not have certain rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did not have right to uh, um, uh, removable property. They did not have right uh, of uh, uh, citizenship. They did not have rights to um, uh, to um, uh, to um, uh, government service and and so on. Un- unless, of course, uh, uh, the state uh, uh, um, uh, you know made arrangements to to that effect, uh, and did not have prior priority over. Uh, are the citizens of uh, um, uh, the kingdom of Jammu and Kashmir. So when India took over uh, under a temporary accession in 1947, India simply um, uh, had an arrangement with the, um, the government of Jammu and Kashmir uh, that it was only responsible for defense, for uh, foreign affairs, and for um, for uh, communications. And also uh, and, uh, and that, that, that India would also honor uh, the rights of uh, of the people, and basically that is what Article 35A is in order to safeguard uh, the existing rights of the people of Jammu Kashmir. India added this uh, this article within within its uh, its um, constitution under a presidential presidential order. So basically, 
there is a it has to be read with another article which is article 370 of the indian constitution which basically sets out what the arrangements are between the government of kashmir and the the state of india under that temporary accession so basically when india um, uh, talks of tempering or indian government talks of tempering with or changing the nature of uh, uh, um, this arrangement then uh, obviously it is uh, it becomes a life and death issue for people of the jammu and uh, state of jammu and kashmir and that is where the, uh, basically the argument Uh, and and the conflict uh, uh, lies as far as this is this is concerned so of course i i guess i understand there are similar arrangements on the pakistani side of kashmir as well uh similar sort of rights that were uh preserved i guess post the the temporary like you say the temporary arrangement of of government on yeah. either side um but the the just just one point uh, i mean it is called uh, generally called as the state subject laws right and this applies to all i mean it applies to you and me because we originate from mm-hmm. state of jammu kashmir and if we have the right of domicile uh, in in the state of jammu kashmir whatever part whether it is under indian indian control or pakistani control now that that law applies to all of the inhabitants of this former state of jammu and kashmir and of course we know uh, and that that um, as you know that the state of jammu and kashmir is now uh, divided uh, between india and pakistan and uh, and this division basically is a division not because the people of kashmir wanted it but because that is how it has turned out since 1947 mm-hmm. uh, uh because of uh, because of the uh, the struggle for right of self determination and india and pakistan um, you know sort of a, so uh, becoming a, a, a contending the the ownership of the state so i think the, qu- the question I, i was leading leading to is the fact that if if the rights are uh to 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 both sides and in this this right predated the partition and the partition yeah. basically is is effectively both areas are contested or disputed territories so does yeah. in in the eyes of international law uh, does the indian state have the right to actually temper with an arrangement that they had actually sort of made um, no no, no. No, I mean, I mean, the simple, uh, simple answer is no. Uh, I mean, no state has. I mean, there are many resolutions of the United Nations uh, uh, Security Council as well as the uh, the, the, the the what was known uh, until the mid 50s, uh, uh, the, um, the the UN Commission on India and Pakistan regarding the future status of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, and those const- those resolutions very clearly uh, um, uh, clearly spell out. that no party no government has any right whether local or in relation to india and pakistan uh, to alter the arrangements or, or uh, the the status of uh, um, of of uh, uh, the existing if you like the rights and and, and arrangements so therefore uh, there is no jurisdiction and you know i said that uh, 33 33 uh, 35a was um uh added to the indian constitution under presidential uh, order uh, in india so it was not it was not passed in the indian parliament and mm-hmm. and 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 the the, the in, indian institutions do not have any jurisdiction uh in law uh, over uh, uh, over this um regarding uh, uh, you know the the arrangements that exist until the 
final, if you like, the determination of the future status of state of Jammu and Kashmir. Right, so, so uh, what instrument is is being used at the moment to actually sort of remove yeah, that? If, if it was a so, so I think I, I just just want to bring it, bring on uh, 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 Rao Farman Ali, who's a resident of of Jammu and Kashmir. He's a journalist there, and I think he's very keen to come in and and uh, yes, make a comment. Course. Yeah, carry on, carry on, uh, uh, Rao so, Sab. Because uh, when uh, the people of Jammu and Kashmir, especially the Kashmiri Pandits and the Dogras of Jammu, Jamwals and the Kashmiri Pandits felt that the people from Punjab are coming and they are being uh, absorbed in the government and getting the government job. Mm-hmm. In order to secure, they protested uh, against it and the Maharaja declared a first conference in 1927. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is order number 1L, uh, oblique 84. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, uh, in 20, uh, uh, 1927. So it clearly uh, asks about the citizenships that the people who are residing in the Jammu and Kashmir from the Treaty of Amritsar, that is 1846. Mm-hmm. And they were treated as post-class citizens. And then the people of Jammu and Kashmir residing from 1911, they are the uh, citizens of Jammu and Kashmir. So it is, there is a classification. Right. As so, 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 sorry, go on. Policy, yeah. So, so as a part of policy, Maharaja again issues uh, uh, another notification in 1932. Mm-hmm. Uh, notification number uh, 13L. Mm-hmm. And it clearly says that uh, uh, the, the people of Jammu and Kashmir who go outside uh, to the territory of Jammu and Kashmir, the two generations living outside in Jammu and Kashmir, that, that the generation third means. Mm-hmm. But to claim the state subject, they have to get a special ijazatnama, a permission mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. royal uh, uh, assembly, whatever it is, mm-hmm. what are the arrangements were. Right. So this is the part of the foreign policy and the widow who is not married outside the territory of Jammu and Kashmir can claim to be the state subject of Jammu okay. and Kashmir. Okay. So th- these are some of the some of the technical details of the uh, the the, mm-hmm. the arrangement that was made. And so the question I was I was going to put to uh, Zafar Saab was was uh, under what arrangement has the government if if the law wasn't passed by parliament if it was a presidential decree what arrangements are being used at the moment to remove that? Is it another presidential decree or has there been consultation no. with the Kashmiri people or what, what's no, been happening? No, no. I, 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 I think, I mean, Rao Saab uh, has given you details which is perfectly, uh, you know, correct uh, analysis of, of the historical uh, aspects and context. But I think uh, here, uh, currently, we have to look into the uh, the intention of the indian uh, indian government exactly. indian government basically basically wants to change the demographic complexion of uh, indian occupied jammu kashmir or indian held jammu kashmir or indian administered jammu kashmir and of course uh, uh, um, I, I, you know that means uh, the valley of uh, valley of kashmir and uh, the jammu province and also ladakh and uh, you know this particular move applies to all the citizens who are now under Indian administration or Indian occupation. So uh, the current government of India uh, wants to change these arrangements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you have to have to uh, uh, recognize here that India does no longer 
recognize the the, the Kashmir issue uh, as being uh, uh, an issue that needs to be resolved. For them, there is no Kashmir issue. And I think that is another dimension here. Mm-hmm. And they want to actually change the complexion of the population. They want to open the floodgates so that the people of Jammu Kashmir become a minority, particularly the majority becomes a minority. That's one fear. The other is, as Rao Saab says, as it was important or valid in the 20s, it is still valid today. And, uh, you know, in Jammu, many of the uh, many of the people would say, well, look, you know, uh, people from the Punjab or from Haryana or Imachal would come in and, and, and get government services. They would also, uh, 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 rich uh, people from various parts of India would come in and buy land and, uh, uh, and, and uh, really change the complexion of the local environment, social environment. Uh, physical environment, economic environment. On, on, the, base, and, uh, on, the, on the basis uh, that it is a cl- cooler climb and, and a more attractive place uh, again. On the basis that thus far, for 90 years, the gates have been closed mm-hmm. for foreigners, as it were. So, uh, and we, 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 the uh, Indian government wants to open those gates and uh, the Kashmiris or people of Jammu Kashmir do not have uh, the economic might to actually compete with the rest of India, uh, as a as, as matter of fact. So that is one aspect of it. The other, I mean, as far as we are concerned, uh, that uh, these rights also give a fundamental uh, basis uh, for the, uh, the, 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 the future status, uh, you know, for the, the, the struggle for future status of of uh, of uh, of the of the state, right, Rosab. I mean, how how justified are some of these fears that that Zafar Sahib has actually pointed out? So, the fact we, 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 again, again, we have to go back to the basic history of Jammu and Kashmir when uh, the partition has taken place through the Partition Act, nineteen forty seven. Yeah, all the treaties which have taken place between uh, the Britishers and with the insular states are the states of India mm-hmm. on 15th of August they standard null and white that means there was a cancellation however what Maharaja did because Maharaja felt that he wanted to be the sovereign and independent Kashmir's head mm-hmm. so on 12th of August 1947 he sends a telegram to Indian Pakistan for the standstill agreement and Pakistan agrees on 16th of August 1947 Mm-hmm. One, because the telegram was uh, sh- short before 15th of August. So uh, here he, he acted smartly. And uh, his prime minister, Ram Chandra Kaur, also wanted that the Kashmir should be an independent country. Second, when the tribal raid happened, and after the tribal raid, Maharaja, because already there was a rebellion going on, Hunza, areas. And uh, in Poonch and the rebellion took place. So Maharaja was confused and frustrated in the utter frustration. And the uh, tribal raid took place. Maharaja writes to, because VP Menon has already arrived in Kashmir on 23, 25th, 26th, 27th, for four continuous days and trying to make uh, the arrangement with the Maharaja and whether the Maharaja did an accession did he as being the Hindu or whatever the reasons are but Maharaja uh, not only did 
a conditional accession, but what you rightly said on the three, that is external affairs, defense, and on the communication. Mm. But there was also uh, instrument of accession associated with this. Right. And the instrument of accession clause 7 says any law or the constitution of India is not applicable to Jammu and Kashmir. Right, okay. So, so, so when the uh, Jammu and this uh, constituent assembly of India was constituted and it made laws. So, for Jammu and Kashmir, because uh, India has already taken issue to United Nations Security Council uh, and promised uh, that the Kashmiri should be given uh, the chance of pilbisit, whatever the preference, um, the wishes of the people, because uh, already Lord Mountbatten on 26th says, Maharaja, that if you exceed with India, it will become a bone of contention. So, you have to respect the wishes of the people of Jammu and Kashmir. So, if we say the wishes of, we are not restricting the wishes to the people, to India, Pakistan, because already there was a uh, policy uh, decision by um, uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah on uh, uh, May 1947, then June 1947, then July 1947, 11th and 30th, that Maharaja has will to remain independent, to be with Pakistan, to be with India. Because it was with the Partition Act, 1947, about okay. the Prince's state. Right. Yeah. Okay, so, so I, I just want to, I just, so I, I mean, this, this so is... I, I want, first I want to clarity. So yeah. then a window was created to establish a relationship between New Delhi and Srinagar through Article 370. So the Article 370 is temporary in nature. There is a definition temporary in nature. Why the Article 3 is temporary in nature? Because India has taken it to United Nations Security Council on 30th, 1st of uh, December 1947. <clears throat> so, so that is why uh, I want to clarity about it. So that is why uh, uh, this. Uh, oh, I, I just, uh, I just, wa I just wanted to understand. Uh, I mean, I've seen some really emotional sort of articles about the impact of this, and, and uh, I just yeah. wanted to understand from you what. Is that a general feeling among the people of, of Jammu and Kashmir that they fear that, that they're going to be overrun by people who are richer and more powerful than they are uh, and, and they will not be able to compete? Is, is that the general feeling? I think that is true and I think the Rao Saab will actually bear me out on that. That actually is true in the present context. But uh, I think historically speaking, uh, if we, um, I mean, as Rao Saab has narrated, uh, since India took the issue to the United Nations, in in uh, yeah. in in uh, more ways than um, many, India forfeited its right uh, to actually uh, you know have a have a have a have a kind of a, you know the, the attitude or the presence that India India subsequently developed over Kashmir because uh, uh, in uh, um, in legal term international legal context Kashmir is. Um, uh, responsibility of the United Nations. Right. Okay. Uh, so I see. I see. Yeah. I see some parallels between this and the Palestinian state, and we were discussing that a little bit earlier on yeah. in our program. Yeah. Do do you think and do you, do do people fear that that you will have this uh, creeping land grab of of Kashmir slowly bit by bit, uh, and you will yeah, end up. Yeah. You'll end yeah. Up, yeah. Yeah. Have, yeah. I mean, I I think uh, I I have said it somewhere else that. Uh, you know, uh, simply a, a Birla or a Tata or even Ambani could, uh, on their own, uh, uh, you know, buy out uh, uh, 
I suppose in terms of money, the the the, the amount of wealth that they have, they could buy out the Indian Indian occupied Jammu Kashmir if they wanted to, and and that is the fear. Mm-hmm. And also in also they want to settle people. Basically, they want to uh, settle people. They want to. uh formalize the presence of people who basically were uh, uh, refugees in 1947 from west punjab or or they are known as west pakistanis they are not they are not from your mirpur or your rawalgaon or your kotli uh, if they were uh, they that would you know they, they qualify to 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 uh, they would be subject to all those laws <laughs> that that rao saab and i have been uh, talking about but uh, uh, you know there there's a large number of people there that they want to formalize and at the moment the indian government is playing a very nasty and very clever and very devious uh, trick uh, in this whole affair by using that kind of people or ngos who are supporting people like that uh, as proxies who have taken the issue to the uh, uh, to the indian supreme court the indian government Uh, in terms of the arrangements historic arrangements whether it is 35a or 370 is duty bound to actually defend it in the supreme court whereas it is not it is not defending it is uh, you know using proxies and it is because the present indian government has an ideological bent and it wants to actually subvert the demographic demographic character of jammu kashmir in order to uh, if you like uh, for once Uh, 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 you know, finish off uh, the 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 sentiment and the rights, the fundamental rights, and uh, and those rights that give rise to the sentiment of so, Kashmiriness and so on. So, uh, so uh, I want to bring Rose up. Rose up. What 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 can be and what I is want, being done? I, I want a little bit clarification. So, so when Article Three Seventy was because Kashmir was given a special status. Otherwise, we have Article Three Seventy One. In But I, I've only got I've only got a couple of minutes left, uh, Rao. So I just wanted to find out what is being done in Kashmir by the Kashmiri people, and what can people outside do in order to influence the outcome of of this particular uh, arrangement. Uh, people of Kashmir, especially different uh, who are politically uh, having political propensity, whether they are mainstream or or from the resistance groups or from the bar association. me in the personal capacity or trying to defend it not only to defend it but try to explain to the people of india and especially to to the civil society that uh, what is the essence of 35a 35a because we have to understand clearly because 35a is is the derived from the article 1st of the yeah. uh, 370 clause 1st of the 370 because 370 empowers president of india to have a relationship between srinagar and new delhi so president of india is using those powers and uh, going for 35a article because already on 18th of july 1952 delhi agreement took place between the political leadership of jammu and kashmir in the shape of national conference and uh, union of india so it was a political uh, treaty it was a, a political agreement hmm. so to constitutionally give it uh, a shape 35a is invoked and in in in, in the delhi are uh, agreement it was uh, having a separate flag having sahriya sir and the prime minister 
and about the state subjects and clearly then uh, art, uh, when the constitution uh, uh, article 37 also says about the uh, establishing constituent assembly of the human kashmir to formulate the laws and decide the future of the uh, this maharaja of human kashmir so when this uh, constituent assembly was dissolved on 27th of november and they adopted a resolution and uh, the maharaja became uh, i mean to say the governor of human kashmir what we call the southern riyasat not the ruler uh, ruler of the human okay. kashmir so so we, 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 but, we but 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 essentially article 370 because the constituent assembly was having the power to to ratify uh, to abrogate the article 370 but article 370 has not been abrogated right okay so, I, i've only got 30 seconds uh, left i've only got sorry rao sahab i've only got junior clarification uh, article 3 of human kashmir says about that it is integral part of india i'm just so going to have to i'm going to i'm going to have to thank you very much now rao sahab uh, the program is if article 370 has not been abrogated how come it is integral okay. jazakallah so, thank you clear. thank you very much we're going to have to go for a short break thank you zafar sahab and rao sahab for your contributions to the program jazakallah assalamu Assalamualaikum. Welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM. And this is Friday Night Live with me, Zafar Iqbal. Um, I am uh, standing in for uh, Hafiz Shaban and uh, Abdul Akbar. Uh, hopefully, I can do, uh, do as good as a job as as they have been in the past and make make this program uh, what it is in terms of popularity. Um, right. So before the break, uh, we were talking uh, about Article 35A. Very technical discussion around. the constitution of jammu and kashmir um and how the the relationship between the state of jammu and kashmir and india and how this article um being watered down or removed uh, what impact that would have would have on the population of jammu and kashmir very interesting very technical discussion hopefully that was informative hopefully you learnt a little bit more about what it was because when i first heard uh, about appeals on whatsapp about article 35a I didn't have a clue. I didn't know what it was about. I don't know what people were worried about. And hopefully uh by that through that program people would be a little bit more aware of what um what that is about and what the implications of that are. And I guess there are implications uh for people who are who have relatives in in that region and people on the Pakistani side as well, I guess. Um right, okay. So we want to move on to our next topic. We have an hour long session uh, around policing. uh around we have a, a regular session with representatives from our local police uh, police and uh, we're very fortunate today to have Richard Cunningham who's a community sergeant uh in coming to the studio today to spare an hour of his time and uh, to come and talk to us about um community policing so perhaps uh Richard you can explain what your role is uh, and I will move on to talk about the topics uh that we wanted to highlight which i guess which is on everybody's mind which is about the 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 knife crime and general rise in london of crime um you know uh phone snatches and and snatching of of uh, uh you know uh purses etc and moped being mopeds being used for crimes etc we want to get to all of that uh, and i want to take a, a a minute out i guess or some time out to ask you the listeners to actually ring in 
uh, and ask any questions that you may have for Richard. Uh, any any questions, anything to do with the, the local policing, any worries, anything that you have that you want to ask him. Our number is 01582 uh, or you can WhatsApp me on 0779 I, I will allow WhatsApps, even though Abdul Akbar doesn't. Uh, and if you got any messages that you want to send across, I will read them out to you as long as they are to do with policing and not unrelated topics. So, Richard, do you want to explain uh, a little bit about your role? Uh, uh, and and we'll, I guess we'll crack on to the, the topic in, in general after that. Yes, certainly. Yeah, thanks, Mr. Iqbal, um, for accommodating me this evening and giving me the opportunity to represent Bevershire Police. And sure. th- thank you for your kind hospitality also um, while I've been here this evening. No I'm very grateful. Um, yeah, so I'm Richard Cunningham. Um, I'm a community sergeant. And just so listeners are aware, that would be similar to what the old neighbourhood policing was all about. Right, OK. My area is south and east Luton. Um, and I'm one of four sergeants um, that cover Luton within the area. So we have the town centre covered, south and east, um, north and west, and central Luton. So it's divided up into that area. We have small teams, it's fair to say. Um, We have, on average, three officers and three PCSOs to each team. My background, um, I've been with Bevershire Police for 18 years. Um, I spent my first four years on response. Then I moved into CID, where I worked in CID for 11 years, both north and south of the county. And my last three years, um, I've got to say, um, I've been my happiest where I'm working in the community. Um, Absolutely love working in Luton and um, the challenges it presents and the people I get to meet. Um, I'm over the moon about um, being here in Luton and working in community policing. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, so I I guess uh, I'm also joined actually in the studio by Omar Omar Khan, who did a very, uh, I think, very successful show uh, some weeks ago on knife crime. And knife crime, I guess, is on everybody's mind at the moment because there have been a couple of high-profile cases in Luton where... Uh, youngsters have tragically lost their lives uh, wastefully I think or over minor things uh, and uh, I, I just wanted uh, Richard your view on and whether you know there, there is a there is I mean there's reports in London uh, you know definitely about increase in, in knife crimes etc and there's a bit of a a uh, bit of a sort of crisis going on I guess there but I, w- I wonder if that's the same in Luton whether whether there is that um, there is that general increase in Luton as well in terms uh, in knife crimes? Yeah, I mean knife crime is not specific to Luton. It's a national problem. Sure. Um, what we what we see at the moment, um, and we tackle it with a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to talk through some of those mm-hmm. um, things that we are doing to tackle knife crime. The first one being an operation we call SEPTA, yeah. which again is a, is a national knife crime initiative. Um, and uh, this time round, it's running in September between the 17th and the 21st. And we have different activities over that five day period. Mm-hmm. So uh, day one will be about engaging with our communities and educating people about knife crime <coughs> and the dangers associated with it. We, day two will be about um, targeted patrols in areas where um, knife crime has been most prominent. 
Um, and then day three again will be another engagement type event where we educate people and advise about the, the seriousness of knife crime and the dangers. And again, day four then will be about like um, targeted patrols, again, in areas where um, knife crime has been happening most. And then lastly, um, the last day will be about retail engagement. So um, discussing and talking to our retailers about um, how they sell knives, where they position them, how easy it is for people to get hold of them or steal them perhaps, and um, and, and pro provide sort of like some assistance and help to um, eradicate that problem. So I think a, a lot of people would, I mean, that, that sounds like there's a lot of, lot of preventative types of activities happening to mm -hmm make people aware of the, of the dangers etc and i guess uh the thing about those is that people who tend to sort of generally turn up for those are, are people who probably wouldn't get involved in, in knife crime or activities like that and i think what people you know would want to see is actually people who commit crimes like that uh, are being punished and, and people who are taken to task effectively and then you know um you know ha having uh, having a feeling in the community that uh, is totally unacceptable and, uh, and people are fully aware of the consequences of it so I, I guess what you were saying does help and and in in the end i guess it's about education at the end of the day but criminals must be dealt with and i think what <clears throat> perhaps you want to comment on that yeah um certainly and i mean at this point i'd like to say to to the listeners that um the number of ways for them to provide information um to report knife crime to us if you're aware of young people or older people going out with knives inform us um it can be done by calling crime stoppers it can be done by calling 101 um twitter facebook we now have an instagram account so we we welcome all of that information and we 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 welcome working with the community to help us to identify these problems and um deal with the uh people accordingly and when, when i was talking about the initiatives that were running we've also we also have um a unit that we've recently set up called an amber unit it's all about um partnership working um with uh, between police officers and our youth offending service um, to identify young people um, affiliated to gangs um, or carrying knives and how we can educate them to prevent them right. go, getting into um, serious crime. On a this is specific education to people who you think are at risk? Yes, but people we've perhaps received information about or from schools or organisations and then we can approach those people with their parents and, and explain about the dangers of doing so. Mm. to try and prevent young people becoming hurt, becoming injured and ultimately lo losing their lives bec because of the dangers of carrying knives. Mm. <clears throat> I, I to yeah, one question I had, you were talking about engagement on the first and third day, I believe it is, of uh, the operation, mm. uh, the nationwide operation. The one challenge that I've realised, because we're trying to obviously work in a few initiatives ourselves, is engagement. How? What kind of activities do you have planned, for instance, because obviously it's not too far away now, uh, the event what kind of activities do you have planned to engage people to have this discussion yeah i mean like um there is a team uh, that's part of opceptor um it's not i'm not involved in that okay um i haven't seen like um a briefing that we will be doing but right. i know from past experience we'll be basing ourselves in places like the town center mm -hmm. where we can maximize the footfall um, approach and reach out to as many people as possible 
right. um, and also probably hotspot areas mm. um, around Luton yeah. where we can reach most people. Okay. And has the police, un- well, obviously every, every, it's a national issue, but every issue is different. So has the police uh, undergone a study as such a research as to the causes behind the rise of knife crime and just crimes of that nature? Has there been an undertaking of a study? Again, that would, would probably be coming from mm. the OPSEPTA team right. who are working on this, and they may have completed something like that. Mm. I can't answer that question. I haven't been involved with that. You must have some feeling, because I think that knife crime uh, has just become... Um, you know, I guess different types of crime go through phases, and you have, you know... Um, crimes of of uh, a particular nature, I guess, have been prevalent at a particular time. But mm. there must be something that triggers it. So you must have some thoughts on on what is it now that the knife crime has become popular, as opposed to say, I don't know, um, you know, robberies or muggings or something like that. Why, why mm. knife crime? What what, it, what is it about the use of knives that is attractive to people out there? Um. <laughs> I suppose that um, would be like um, canvassing opinion from young people. Mm. But what I mean, my view would be it can sometimes appeal glamorous Mm. to young people to be affiliated to a gang Mm. and be carrying weapons and feel um, part of a gang and belonging. Mm. Um, Young people are always looking um, to be part of something, um, to fit in. Um, all those things that young people go through. And on, on the other side, people could feel vulnerable if they're not part of a yeah, gang. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're, they're singled out. Yeah. If they're not part of it, they may, may feel more vulnerable. So it's more, more it's, it's a gang thing rather than sort of a individual crime thing. It's a gang thing uh, to carry knives and then to protect yourself and protect your, I guess, your, your peers, I guess. Yeah, that's certainly one aspect. Mm. Um, I, I would say, uh, with regards to, but again, I mean, I just like to reach out to everybody to tell us if they know about young people going out carrying knives, if they overhear conversations, if they overhear or look at WhatsApp messages or Instagram messages that are, that are being put out, just so that we can intercept and deal with that to prevent a tragedy happening. But of course, of course not carrying knives <clears throat> has is illegal and has been mm. illegal for a long time, hasn't it? Not yes. Right, and and that message obviously isn't getting through. Uh, and I guess part of your your challenge really is to get that message across. If you're carrying a knife, you're breaking the law. Yes, uh, correct. Yeah, um, carrying knives, um, whether you have intention to use them or not, is is a crime. Yeah. Right. Yes, and I'm right in thinking if you um, if you've been involved in some sort of a knife crime and then you've been caught carrying a knife a second time, there's a sentence that goes with that prison sentence. Am I right? I'm not certain about that. Okay. That would be something that the Crown Prosecution Service considers. Um, I'm not sure if there's a set structure right. or it's considered on a case-by-case basis. Okay. I think one question people in the community listening right now would have, you know, because you know, you might know of someone that's involved, or not even involved, but just carrying a knife, uh, and they might uh, worry about the repercussions. So if they were to talk to the police, what would happen to that individual? Is there, Could you shed some light on that? What would be the procedure if someone was to inform you of a potential um, offender? Yeah, um, obviously, like we work with our communities and members of the public to try and get those that information out to us so we can intercept and, and deal with it. There's hundreds of, well, I say hundreds, there's several ways of people providing that information. Mm. And it can be provided anonymously. Yeah. It can be provided online. 
it can be provided um, via third parties. So if the person didn't want to speak to police themselves, they could talk to someone else, like mm. a, a youth leader or something like that, just as an example, right. or a mosque leader, mm. to pass that information to us, mm. just so that we could get the information in to accept, like, intercept a, a tragedy occurring. So, so lots of different ways yeah. that the information could come to us so that we could deal with it. Okay, so I, I guess there is on the second half of the program we want to talk about, uh, I guess, respect for the law and, and I guess um, in some ways whether that respect for the law and rules generally seems to be waning uh, and, and maybe the part of the reason is because people aren't afraid of the consequences anymore. Mm. Uh, we've discussed in the second half, but one of the things I, I guess which may contribute that to people being a little bit more um, I guess a bold in breaking the rules and breaking the law would be perhaps uh, not seeing the visibility of the police officers, not in the way that perhaps it used to be. And uh, I, I understand there is there are still cuts uh, being made to the force. Is that the case? And, and what effects do you think that's going to have, um, you know, in the policing and the style of policing? I would say. Yeah, well, I mean, it's fair. There's been a reduction in number in a number of officers. Hmm. In the region of fifteen to twenty thousand nationally, oh. um, that's the reduction that's happened oh. um, through these times of austerity, oh. and it, the effect it's had on Bedfordshire oh. is between two fifty to three hundred oh. um, over the last couple of years a reduction in officers, oh. and that has been um, due to people retiring, people moving on. And the lack of recruitment. But what I'm very pleased to say now is we're, we are um, increasing numbers and we have a recruitment process in place. So it, it's actually lack of recruits or lack of money, you're saying, has led to the reduction? Well, the lack of money has prevented us from recruiting. Right. So between 2010 and 2014, mm -hmm. there was no recruitment. Mm -hmm. but, but what I'm pleased to say now there is, is money. That, that there's money. Well, we, we recognised an operational necessity to increase the numbers mm -hmm. because they were so low. And how much are you increasing them by, if you're allowed to give that number? Yeah, um, we, at the moment, we, in the last two years, um, BEDS have recruited 250 officers. Okay. Mm -hmm. So by March 2019, we're looking at 330 new officers within Bedfordshire. Mm -hmm. right. And I think the last time the, the police commissioner was here, there was a talk about the fact that even though uh, Luton is part of Bedfordshire Police, which generally is in a region which, uh, which is seen perceived at least anyway, not not as um, not as affected by crime as maybe Central London is or, or parts of London uh, is. Uh, but the the characteristics of Luton is much more like London. So you see criminal gangs and people of, who commit crime being, I guess, um, not forced out but moving out of London and, and coming into Luton. Whereas the Bedfordshire Police doesn't have the equivalent, I guess, uh, firepower in terms of the money, budget, I guess, um, to actually deal with that. Are you seeing a trend that, that a lot of criminals are being forced out of London and, and actually coming to Luton to commit crimes in there? You seeing that? Um, yeah, I think um, Luton is on a par with, with crime and activity as the London boroughs. Mm. Um, the thing that the Metropolitan Police have is they can perhaps rely on other boroughs to support mm. problematic boroughs mm. where, like, um, the, the, the place we would go to in Luton, we could approach Dunstable and Bedford 
which well, I, have, I have seen Metropolitan Police cars in Luton as well. I mean, I, I mean, what's the arrangement there? I've seen Met Police, uh, you know, uh, police police vans and, and police uh, uh, cars in, in Luton all over the place uh, a lot of the time. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not aware of like um, the Metropolitan supporting us like um, on a daily basis right. certainly for specific events right, okay. there may be some support for us or it may be the, um, the metropolitan police conducting inquiries within our area or something like that but we at the moment we don't have support of metropolitan units within luton bedford or dunstable mm-hmm. um quick question um because one of the workshops that we actually carried out and we had a lot of people part, taking part in the community and one of the causes they um, associated with the rise in knife crime is a lack of enforcers. And obviously, we just had that discussion. They've been cuts, but now you're saying by 2019, there will be 330 new officers. Yeah. Do you feel that that would suffice? Do you feel that's enough law enforcers to ensure that the law is enforced? Well, that's a fantastic improvement for us to have yeah. 330 new officers hmm. in a period of, um, well, almost three years oh it is don't get me wrong I'm just, yeah. I just want to know if that would be enough in your opinion and in what you're seeing in terms of crime rates yeah is that enough people I think we'd always benefit from more people mm. and I'm hoping this recruitment program continues mm. um, to increase numbers yeah. um, because people recognise like when the cuts were made through these times of austerity people we saw a higher crime rate mm. Mm. Uh, i haven't got figures here to give you but we see a higher crime rate um it impacts the public sector um higher demands with less officers now these numbers are recre- increasing we hope to get back somewhere where we were but i think we need to to keep recruiting and improving um to take the force in the right direction mm. to keep um, everybody safe yeah. I, I guess what one of the things that that uh, has been quite visible uh over the many years i guess is is the um i guess trimming down of, of what's expected of, of the police so i mean um you know i remember in the 80s and whatever police Police service, uh, you know, did everything effectively from from beat on a street to to CID work, I guess, and to you know um, tackling sort of um, hooliganism and mm. so we're seeing that that the responsibilities or the role of the police has been reduced somewhat. So they have withdrawn from the street, and it's now the PCSOs and PCSOs of a different structure, I guess, from from uh, uh, traditional police, I would say, uh, and then things like. You know, enforcement of minor offences is now outside your remit altogether. So you like parking offences and people parked very badly on zebra crossings and all of that. Uh, you know, it's, it's left pretty much the local councils and not to deal with. Is that are you seeing that as, as, as a trend as well, or is? Well, we we recognise with the, the current situation, with the numbers that we have. Mm we rely on partnership working to assist us. We recognise that we we cannot do absolutely everything and we have to apply what we call a a thrive assessment to to go what's the biggest threat, the biggest harm, the biggest risk to us. Um, And we have to apply that logic to approach the the demand that comes in to Bedfordshire Police. Um, we rely heavily, like I said, on partnership working. So if we can use our um, working partnership with Luton Borough Council mm. to deal with parking issues, um, our neighbourhood enforcement and action team to deal with fly tipping issues, mm. um, we look at where we can work with partners all the while mm. to... Um, well, the thing is, you, you say that, yeah. uh, you say that, but, um, you know, 
I would say right in the past there was there was that that uh, fear of a uh, um, of action. Yeah, right? and and you're not getting you're not seeing that anymore. You you haven't got the fear of the action because the uh, the the council enforcement officers don't carry that same respect, so to speak, or the. Mm. Um, you know, and and you know, p- people are not generally inclined to say, "Well, okay, uh, I will get caught, or I, you know, probably get away with it." I think they are more inclined towards, "I'll get away with it if I do something," mm. and and there isn't that fear that I'll get caught. And and what 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 is it that that can? It's not fear, I, I guess. That you know, uh, the approach that that you described earlier is much more, much more about education and mm. educating people not to. Yeah. Uh, but there has to be an element of well, if you don't, this is what's going to happen. And I mm. guess how much of that are you focusing on? Is the police fo- uh, focusing on? Yeah, well, well, policing's much more complex now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with things like um, cybercrime. Yeah. Mm. Um, it, it's different to how it was mm. in the eighties, where. Um, we had numbers. Yeah. We didn't have the complexity of crime mm. then. Mm. Um, uh, it's just changed. That, that's that's where we are. Nature and of crime has changed. Nature of crime has changed, and we have to adapt mm-hmm. uh, and and spread our resources um, further. Mm. When 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 we're on the street, we have to deal with complex issues mm. um people who are suffering with mental health issues mm. is something else mm. so the role of a police officer has become much more difficult mm. um we have to know how to signpost mm. people to social services mm. to get the assistance that they require mm. um, again signpost people and assist people with mental health issues we have a mental health street triage team now that assists us um, so we have lots of different complex issues on the street lots of different things to deal with mm. um as as well as the complex criminality that's going on mm. and wasn't as much in the 80s because it's, it's different and technology has come much further forward and directed us in a certain way just a quick question because i know we're going to go towards a break um no. you just mentioned uh crime has changed and that you rely on partnerships in your opinion, is there a specific partnership or partnerships that you feel like you're not getting help from or that could be useful? Um, no, I mean, we're, we're doing so much with partnership work, in, particularly in, in my field, in community policing. Mm. Um, we're regularly talking to our partners um, everywhere, mm. and, and that includes our communities. Right. We, have, um, we aim for community engagement events once a week. We um, meet with our local councillors to set priorities about what the most important thing is in their areas um, and, and work with them to, to combat that. We, we work on engagements. We canvass opinion from ordinary members of the public. Um, we advertise it well of where we are. Yep. And um, we, we reach out to as many people as we can hmm. to get everything that's an issue to try and deal with it. Okay, right, okay so we're fast coming to a break. Uh, so... Uh, we have uh, Richard Cunningham, who's a community sergeant, talking to us today from uh, the representative of the police today. We're talking about uh, knife crime in the first half. We'll pick up the conversation after this short break. Uh, so stay tuned, inshallah. We'll talk after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM 105.1 FM. Um, we are talking today about policing and community policing. We have uh, Richard Cunningham, who is a community uh, uh, community sergeant with us, and we have Omar, who's done some 
programs on this very show uh, to do with knife crime, etc. He's with us today to discuss police and policing in, in general. Uh, we talked before the break uh, about knife crime uh, and, and its, its increasing prevalence, I guess, uh, uh, as, as compared with other crimes. And, and I guess uh, the reporting as well, I mean, it's, it's seen as, as being a serious problem in London. Uh, so we talked about the fact that, you know, what's, what's being done in Luton to, to be able to allay the fears of the community and also to try and educate uh, people who are at risk of, of being uh, at risk of committing these crimes uh, about the consequences, etc. Uh, we want to touch a little bit uh, more on uh, drugs again. I mean, this is another issue that keeps com coming up again and again uh, that people are worried, are concerned about. And there is a general impression within the community that drug dealing and, and drug use is quite prevalent. Uh, and in many a time when you're having conversations and you see somebody who's driving a fast car or uh, a souped up car, you know, the immediate impression goes towards the world. Actually, we think where we know where he got his money from. Uh, but the fact is the fact that people have a perception and there is that perception out there that, that drug dealing and, and people are actually sort of profiting from, from the crime. Um, so I wanted to touch a little bit uh, about that uh, with Richard and, and see whether that perception uh, is the right perception uh, and what's actually been done to tackle it. Yeah, well, we do come across um, drugs activity within Luton. Mm -hmm. um, we recognise that users of drugs are vulnerable people. Mm. And Bevershire Police is all about looking after vulnerable people. Mm. We support and we safeguard those people who um, have drug addictions and we support them in any way and any way we can and we look at dealing and targeting the people who are dealing the drugs on the streets mm -hmm. from their houses in the communities and again we rely on the communities passing us information we rely on people telling us by calling 101 or Crime Stoppers, um, online reporting, um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of those things. We rely on people helping us with tackling the problem. Um, we deal with information coming into us on a regular basis. Again, um, the information will come in and it may seem that we're not doing anything for um, a period of time because nothing happens but we may be working behind the scenes and in the background we may be um, applying for warrants to execute at certain addresses um, and then we'll get a team together to execute warrants where this is happening um, at addresses and then we'll be looking at the process thereafter of closing premises down where drug dealing is taking place We'll be looking looking at intercepting people on the street with our powers of search under Section 23 of the Misuse of Drugs Act. Mm. Um, we'll look at high-vis patrol with both PCs and PCSOs in our hotspot areas where it's happening, where we're stopping people and finding drugs. Um, so we're doing lots of different things um, to tackle the dealers and suppliers. Mm. And that's at different levels as well. So... Um, to close like um, a drugs uh, den is one level. Then the next level, where our serious crime works, is perhaps taking out suppliers and dealing with people who are 
supplying drugs on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. And on um, there's an article on uh, the homepage of Bedfordshire Police's website about some success we've had recently involving several people um, supplying drugs uh, around weapons. So that was a major operation that's, that's dealt with like um, a big issue within Luton. Within so, the county, so, so I, think, I, think, I, I guess you mentioned you mentioned um, that the, the, the Thrive approach to actually sort of dealing with crime, um, and I guess I just wanted to sort of ask whether whether the police got the balance right because one of the things that uh, the Muslim community and, and our listeners are particularly concerned about is is use of the uh, is preventing and, and police's activities around prevent um, and uh, the threat versus i guess the threat from drugs and and gangs and whether the police have got the balance right and whether they are over uh more emphasis on things to do with prevent um which are politically motivated and and some would argue that that perhaps uh the risk compared to the risk um of gang violence and and drugs related violence is as beneficial police got that balance right do you think well, um, the calls that come into our control room mm. are, are all graded um, and, and the threat, harm and risk is applied yeah. um, to how we respond. Mm. And as you can probably imagine, we have uh, numerous calls that have to be down the list because we perhaps have to deal with the ones where there's an immediate threat. Mm. And but do you, do, you, do you think that um, uh, prevent-related, uh, I guess, threats... When I say prevent, uh, which may lead on to sort of, um, you know, terrorism and, and etc. Do you think overall, um, you know, judging by on a case by case basis and as compared with with um, violence from drugs gangs and just general gangs to do with violence? Uh, do you think that the balance between the level of threat um, and, and the frequency of threat, that balance is right? Police. Yeah, I would say the balance is about right. I mean, there's there's different departments. Um, there's our prevent team, mm-hmm. um, our counterterrorism team, it's our serious crime team, and we all come together and um, and community link in with those. Again, it's a form of partnership working, I guess. Community, although we're all Bevershire police, mm-hmm. community policing very much. But I think that the community would argue that that's not the case. The case is that that there is overemphasis on on prevent related um, policing. Uh, and less less of a emphasis on what we as, as a community fear, which is the fear of violence from drugs and drugs drugs gangs, mm. uh, and and that's not been as uh, seen as as, as a, uh, at a par. I said as par yeah. with 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 perhaps threats from from. Um, you know, political violence, I guess. So the view of the community, the view of the community, yes. more time and resources are spent on dealing with prevent yeah. issues yeah. than than drug taking Correct. and yeah. drug dealing. Yeah. Or um, well, even knife crime and stuff yeah. like that, actually. Yeah. During a recent poll and survey, it just seems more apparent that people, if you ask them what the purpose of the police is, they'll pretty much always refer to prevent and, and those kind of measures instead of a knife crime or gang related kind of <coughs> violence, all of that stuff. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, from from where I am, like um, covering the south and east of Luton, I, I would have said the balance is about right. Um, obviously, you're getting a different um, 
opinion and engage from the community which uh, that that should be discussed and addressed mm -hmm. you know with uh, our, our senior officers um, mm -hmm. if the community believes that the um, the balance isn't right that's something that we want to get involved with and address and, and adjust mm -hmm. and I think that that leads on to my next question which which is uh, which is respect for the police and policing really and generally respect for the rule of law uh, and there was the headlines yesterday I think or day before um, in in the one of the London papers basically uh, where a police officer officer was set upon by bystanders effectively while making an arrest uh, and the fact that you know the headline really was that, that people have lost and the details in the, in the article is that people have lost respect for the police now, do you think that's the case? People have lost respect for the police? Um, I'm not sure about respect. I think they recognise there's there's less officers, mm. um, and that, that may be um, part of the cause, where people are, as we see, um, several times a week where officers are assaulted, mm. and we do see that, mm. um, that that happens. I can't give you the numbers or the figures, but we do see people getting hurt, mm. police officers getting hurt while, while they're trying to protect people. Um, but uh, with regards to um, respect, um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, all, all I can, can say is I think it might be um, down to the less numbers of officers. Right, OK. Then I was just going to say really link it to the fact that, that if if police are seen to be um, acting on politically motivated activities like prevent, etc., maybe, mm -hmm. uh, they're not seen as, as being supporters of the community, being part of the community. Mm -hmm. And therefore that, that, you know, that mentality to say, well, you, you're not... You're not part of us. You're part of them, and then them is the police, basically, and it's us versus them. Yeah. Do 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 you feel that? Not from my position. I mean, I engage with um, all members of communities. Um, I, I mean, I spent a period of time in the north and west area. Mm. I'm now managing the south and east, and I engage completely with my partners and council, members of the public, mm. and, and I listen and uh, I act on the information mm. and um, deliver what, what people want of me. So uh, at my at my level of community sergeant, mm -hmm. I, I personally think that I've got a good working relationship sure. yeah. with my communities, mm -hmm. all, all my communities mm -hmm. um, within the south and east. And do you think that's the case uh, throughout Bedfordshire Police, or is that personal only to you? No, I think that's with, you know, I see the same sort of um, uh, good level of um, working with communities in Bedford. Mm. Uh, I see the same in Dunstable. And I see the same not only in the south and east, in the north and west, the town centre and central. Mm. I, I think we've got community policing um, about right with, with that um, balance. Yeah. Be because um, what we do have is we have low numbers. Mm. And like I said at the um, beginning, when I introduced myself, we have like three police constables and three PCSOs yeah. on average as part of each team yeah. some some teams have more numbers than that but in Luton that's about an average on what we have um, but the chief constable's aim is to increase those numbers mm. and that's what we're working towards and but the concern is you could increase numbers but if you're not engaging the community I feel like that's not really beneficial 
Well, that's, that's why the question comes there's, back. There's a, there's a related question to that, yeah. which, which is, um, and I think this is about the ethos of, of policing. And I guess the ethos we talked about, ethos has changed over the years. It's much more about education and much more about sort of, um, you know, making people aware of the dangers, etc. Right, as opposed to the consequences if you break the law. And I think that I think you know your role and the role of you know some of the other sort of uh, you know police forces is similar as well. It's about education, cutting crime at the root, and I think it's a good approach. It is a good approach in the sense that you're trying to reduce people getting into crime in the first place. Uh, but there is there is I think again this is this is a feeling. There is a feeling that that um, you know the, the streets have been abandoned, right? And, and you have low level crime. You have you have you know people parking on zebra crossings. We have uh, you know situations where people frequently dump their rubbish, right, in, in quiet streets uh, and in places. That, so you know without fear of uh, of a backlash, without fear of consequences. Uh, so how how can and is it the police's role? How can Respect for the law, I guess, right, would be could be brought back. Is that through education or is it through, through I guess, visible action? <clears throat> Probably a bit of both. I think mm. um, both both uh, education and vis- visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think um, the increase in numbers can help that. Mm. Um, with uh, the figures we have and the areas we have to cover. Mm. Um, it's very vast mm. um, and in in the south and east for example it stretches from around the rear of the police station to as far as Stopsley mm. um, and then eastwise like Wigmore and that area so we have a large area to cover sure. um, and we are aiming to to increase these numbers mm. so that we have more visibility and that may I think that will assist in um, the respect coming back mm. for officers and officers also for the law as well I think right the rules and law uh, because I think in some respects um, I guess if you, if people think they can get away with it right, they will actually do it right and, and, and education only goes so much education is about internalizing a message and accepting it mm. and there are people who say well I don't accept it you know I'll do what I want to do because that's it makes me feel good uh, you know and do what I want to do uh, and that's where consequences come into it, I guess. And, you know, if there's no fear of consequences, uh, then people will do, you know, what what they feel that they want to do. And I think that's generally the impression as well. Mm. So I guess n- numbers is the answer. And I think you talked about, I guess, partnership working. Uh, the other aspect of it is, is, right, if you are working in partnership and you've got enforcement officers in, in you know, Borough Council, yeah. you are presumably there are some... You know, there's some private security, etc. That you work with. Uh, do they do they have the same level of influence and respect? I mean, you know, if if you're at a crime scene, basically, an enforcement officer turns up and a police officer turns up, who's the one who's most likely to sort of have an influence on the situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that's um, that that's prob- probably natural mm. that people think that you know, and we we go back to the days when there was traffic wardens and yeah. things like that people see that as different to a police officer mm-hmm. and again parking enforcement officers mm-hmm. um, and perhaps like some of our partnerships or some security mm-hmm. that, that don't have the warranted powers that police officers do mm-hmm. PCSOs even to some extent yeah. uh, are seen that they don't have the warranted some they of the warranted have, they, powers they don't have the tools basically the, the police officers have yeah. um, so they may see it that way and I think that's uh, sort of people being people 
Um, but I don't see how um, that respect, because um, obviously if there's more police officers that could support and assist. I mean, we, we do lots of partnership working and with parking, for example. So it'll be some enforcement officers from... Luton Borough Council, the parking team, and our community officers working together. Mm, mm. And uh, we do that on, you know, several different occasions, the same with, with fly tipping, mm. things like that. All the partnerships come together, uh, and both parking and fly tipping, speeding mm. is another issue that's mm. important to the community. Um, and again, we use our volunteers um, with with speed guns and things like that to send send letters out, and then we have like um, a PCSO and a PC work together, or two PCs to to issue to carry out the enforcement. Um, so that so there might be advising uh, on one occasion, there might be enforcement on another occasion, and all these things come together. We might be looking at working with our partners to engineer the speed out of the road. Mm. so traffic calming measures that sort of thing mm. so we rely heavily on partnership working sure. because of the situation we find ourselves in um, so you, you, you talked about sort of community volunteers and I think you mentioned also about schemes where um, you know different areas have their own all right, volunteer groups of volunteers basically patrol in the streets etc to make people feel secure how is that getting I mean I, I can't remember the, the name of the scheme but how is that getting along we have different watch schemes. Yeah. Well, there's one Portland watch, yeah. which is in the Dunstable um, Road area. Yeah. yeah. So it can it can range from anything. It, mm. it can range from speed watch, street watch, hotel watch, mm. um, dog watch, all sorts of different watches. There are members of the public that give up their time mm. to support us, what we're doing, mm. feed us information, pass us information, work together to try and solve some of the problems. Mm. And we, we rely on that completely. And, and are you finding that that's a success? And are you finding people joining some of these watches? Are you? Yeah, we we have um, we have neighbourhood watch schemes where people will make contact with us and want um, a visit from a PCSO or a PC who can advise on sort of like how how the scheme works, how it can be set up, and how we can assist with sort of like increasing numbers to support what we're doing. Yeah, I, I do remember there's some discussion about. Um, uh, I think it's along the lines of, of Neighbourhood Watch, but it was more uh, having teams of people who actually put on high-vis jackets and walk the streets effectively. I can't remember the scheme, if that's still vis- available or not. Yeah, I, well, I think Portland Watch uh, is what I'm describing. They're a Neighbourhood Watch, it is and neighborhood this is exactly it's what they do. Watch, they would don, uh, and they're in the process right now. They've had that discussion with police and, ca- and the council, and I think they're in the process of actually training people yeah. to be able to do that, like street wardens. And that, that's fantastic. That's fantastic support for us. Mm-hmm. And it, it might be also an insight for people to come and join the See, service. Yeah. Because okay. that, that, that's one thing we're always looking to do as well. Mm. Reach out to communities. We're actively recruiting. We want people from um, to come and join us because it is a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Um, although the austerity has, has hit us hard, mm-hmm. as it has um, hospitals and mm-hmm. teachers and ambulance staff and f- fire, it's hit, it's hit everybody. It's, it's a fantastic job, and we welcome people to come in and support us because there's some fantastic camaraderie mm-hmm. within this job and mm-hmm. some support for each other. Mm-hmm. Because because we, we hear about like um, officers getting supported, but as soon as like there's a shout from an officer in danger particularly in Luton, and it's across the whole county, you've got a lot of support very quickly. 
to to assist their colleagues and also not only at that point where there's a problem but the after effects if people are lot officers are exposed to something quite traumatic Mm. which we the average person wouldn't see on on a daily basis Mm. there's good support in place for them people Mm. to to help them with what they've seen what they've had to deal with um and that's why it's it's a fantastic job always has been and still is Mm -hmm. even with some of the issues that we've had thrown at us that we've had to deal with Mm. and we, we 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 always we try and work smarter not necessarily harder we try and work smarter so we can best assist the members of the public and the communities to the best possible way. I've got two questions. I'll ask the first one and we'll yeah. see where you go from there. Um, we're talking about neighbourhood watches um, and people joining them. One of the concerns that I saw being surfaced was we can do this all day, but who's going to take us seriously? The things that we raise here, or say I know one of the issues they had was someone being a few people being drunk and walking up and down the street at the middle of, in the middle of the night and causing a lot of dis- uh, disruption. And so they, the question that was being asked there was, are they actually going to listen? Are the police actually going to do something? Because, from again, the impression is understaffed. There's not enough of them. That's yeah. why we're having to do this. And so who, is this actually going to be effective? So what would you say to that to make sure people... It's back up, really. That's the yeah, um, yeah, I understand your concern completely. But the, the high visibility is a fantastic deterrent. Mm. Um, it doesn't solve all the problems, mm. but... If, if, for example, like take um, a burglary hotspot area, if someone was to see a high visibility jacket, it, it could prevent a burglary taking place. If people are looking for violence and are intoxicated, um, and uh, yeah, then they, you know, they're probably going to have the same effect. Is a, is a member of the public in a fluorescent to a police officer? Mm. They may have the same effect because they've lost all control of of, of what they're doing. But in a in a burglary area, with regards to the scene of fluorescent, people probably wouldn't know if that was a police officer or a yeah. volunteer worker in a high-vis jacket. You're absolutely right about that being a deterrent. But the question is more about, will the police actually take those uh, take the information given to them and act on it? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We're looking for information, like I said, all of the ways, coming in all the while. Mm. What's important to people? Let's get the information in. Let's assess it and let's deal with it. So if you and a team, for example, were out on a Thursday or Friday evening mm. and were passing this information to say that there's a, I don't know, there's a problem within a particular place, we'd be looking at addressing that, mm. applying a community like um process we we use like a problem solving process to tackle that issue right and we're constantly looking for that information to come in so we can assess Mm. we can collate and we can deal and make the community a better place for members of the public okay and and i guess i think one final question we're probably running out of time now one final question is around uh another crime which is prevalent which is scams i guess lots of scams and yeah particularly elderly people who don't don't fully understand or fully appreciate yeah. you know um, where some of these scammers are coming from perhaps they're not they're not on you know your social media and they're not haven't picked it up from anywhere so what what kind of campaigns have you got or what sort of activities have you got to actually make people aware of particular types of scams that people have uh, yeah we subject to we have our own cybercrime unit yeah. And within that cy- cybercrime unit is like a fraud specialist. Yeah. And I've used the services of that person mm-hmm. to educate the community officers 
mm-hmm. and our partners who are invited to the training that I um, mm-hmm. have provided and our PCSOs. So it's mainly because we don't have the numbers, um, it's mainly about educating people. So if people have been scammed, um, the the unit, the cybercrime unit, will attend and advise um, to prevent them being scammed again. Um, Sometimes these scams occur from overseas, sometimes from within the UK, but we certainly provide that level of education to people um, because um, sometimes it's difficult to detect those crimes. But there's certainly that level of education which can sometimes prevent people falling victims. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, in particular, I guess, is, is the elderly people who uh, may be sort of, um, maybe sort of a little bit more vulnerable on the basis that perhaps they don't, they don't have access to social media and they're not aware of some of these things happening. Yeah. Um, but again, what I'd encourage is keep passing that information to us, keep, keep feeding it into us. We can disseminate it accordingly to the appropriate unit so that we can get the best help and support for people who find themselves victims of scams. Right, OK. Uh, I think it's, it's time to, to say thank you very much, uh, Richard, for coming in today and having a discussion. It's been a long discussion today. I think we covered lots of different areas, I think very important areas as well. And listeners, I hope you found it really useful today. Uh, if there's anything that you want uh, us to follow up on or Richard to follow on, up on, uh, please call us on 01582481822 and we'll be happy to sort of uh, assist. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for tuning in to uh, the programme today. And until next week, inshallah, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you.